This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 9th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Just months after leaks revealed the federal government's ongoing surveillance of tens of millions of Americans, the president finally says he's ready to reform the National Security Agency. But the president also argues that the warrantless collection of phone records, email data, and other seizures doesn't in and of itself constitute abuse. Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, comments on the president's press conference. The president says that he's comfortable that these broad-scale surveillance programs are simply not being abused. Well, he may be comfortable because he trusts the people that work for him, um, but that doesn't mean that the American people have to be comfortable. We have a system where the people are supposed to be be able to oversee the government, uh, literally oversee Congress, which oversees the executive branch, uh, while we see oversee the executive branch as well. And that fails in a secrecy environment. And these programs are clearly within a secrecy environment. We seem to learn, if not daily, certainly weekly, uh, new revelations about what's happening here. It's a failure of oversight, and the president's confidence doesn't give me any more confidence than I had before. We know that James Clapper lied to Congress in March because of the uh, leaks regarding the NSA surveillance. We know that the NSA is using very broad definitions of certain terms and sometimes definitions of terms that uh, are alien to the people who wrote and voted on the legislation, uh, specifically the Patriot Act, Section 215. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're filing a brief on that. What does that contain? Well, it talks about 215. Uh, there's a challenge to the Verizon order. That was the leaked order that uh, some, some time ago came out and started this whole ball rolling. Uh, a direct challenge in the Supreme Court because the law allows the Electronic Privacy Information Center is bringing the challenge, uh, allows them no other recourse. So this unusual filing with the court goes into Section 215. We're filing an amicus brief to support uh, that that filing in the hopes that the court will take it up. It's a long shot, but at least we have a chance to get these issues in front of the court. Now, just to be clear, Section 215 allows, as, as written, what? So Section 215 literally says that an application for an order to, to hand over information uh, must include a statement of facts showing that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the tangible things sought are relevant to an authorized investigation. A lot of people talk about that as the relevant standard, and it is a relevant standard, which is a very, very low standard. And that discussion has is, is occupied a lot, uh, a lot of air around here. But if you read the statute uh, a little bit more carefully than just uh, going to that adjective, uh, I think you can understand it a little better. Uh, it says that uh, uh, the statement the statement must include grounds to believe that t- tangible so- tangible things being sought are relevant. Are is the present participle the present participle of the verb to be. That means at the point in time when the application is filed, there must be a showing of relevance to an investigation. Uh, it it doesn't allow for an application based on potential future investigations. And similarly, the adjective authorized investigation, authorized investigation. Um, That's the past participle of to authorize. It means that an investigation must exist having been authorized at the time that the application is submitted to the court. So I think a lot of the discussion around the relevant standard misses the point. You have to have an investigation existing by which you can determine relevance. And the fact that this order, the Verizon order and every other order that's, that's been issued under Section 215 for this program, uh, goes to or investigations that haven't come into existence yet. Uh, that's a failure, and, and that's an argument we make, is that the court can't approve 
the, the FISA court can't approve applications for investigations that haven't come into existence yet. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, the relevant standard as used by the NSA with regard to phone records includes, let's say I'm the subject of an investigation, every phone contact I have, every phone contact they have, and every phone contact those people have as well. So three degrees from me uh, that's is, right. is what the NSA considers to be relevant. That's right. It's a, and it's a, that's a huge, huge swath of people. Uh, even you have so many friends that uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are within that three-hop range. And so we're talking about a huge amount of data. This is happening in a, in a strange song-and-dance two-step behind the walls of secrecy. The data be, is being gathered wholesale. And that's where the real objection lies, because we can't know, we can't oversee what happens afterwards. The government is saying, well, behind our walls, we have important protections in place, and so we're not actually gathering that much data. Then we learn about the, the three-hop rule, and we discover actually they are using, even the, even the data that they say that they're not using, they're using massive amounts of data behind that wall. So there's a failure of oversight, a, a clear example where the public wouldn't accept that kind of investigation as reasonable, but inside behind the behind the walls of a black budget they figured out how they think it's reasonable for themselves. Smith v Maryland is the Supreme Court case that the NSA seems to be hanging its hat on a lot of federal uh, law enforcement agencies hang their hat on which essentially enshrined this third party doctrine. Right. Third party doctrine originated earlier but Smith v Maryland is the case that applied it to a, a pen register device which basically uh, records traffic information on on telephones. And the administration, you know, released a white paper relying again on the on this case. Uh, Smith v. Maryland is a thin, thin piece of straw on which to hang this kind of program. In that case, uh, a woman's home had been burglarized. the The person who robbed her was driving a Chevy Malibu, and she knew that. And she began getting calls from a person identifying himself as the burglar. And she saw this car passing by for uh, the 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 home. She gave the police the name of the person, said, I think this is the guy who, who burglarized my house. He's been driving by. Police went to the telephone company, asked them to put a pen register on the phone. They did voluntarily and confirmed that he had been making calls. He was making calls to her house. One person about which law enforcement had good information about criminal behavior. The court found that reasonable to, to use a pen register without a warrant. It does not follow from that that mass surveillance of all Americans' phone calls is reasonable. None of us are suspects when the, when the information is collected. Law enforcement has no information about any particular crime that they're investigating. And this data in a, in a format that's easy to analyze using, using mass computing power reveals incredible amounts of information. So the scales, the, the, the Smith v. Maryland balancing is barely on the same scale as the kind of balancing you would do if you examined this this program for constitutional reasonableness today. Um, so you can you can argue that this is constitutional under Smith v. Maryland, but be ready to be embarrassed when the Supreme Court gets a hold of that case again and makes a new decision. Now, just to be clear, Smith v. Maryland, the the third party doctrine means that once you have given your information to someone who is not you. Uh, outside the confines of your home, essentially, you have lost a privacy interest, a Fourth Amendment interest in that information. That's correct. It arises, the third-party doctrine, from the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, an Orwellian named law, if, if there ever was one, 
that required banks to turn over information about their about their customers' uh, financial doings. Uh, in a pair of cases in the early 70s, the court established that, well, information that's been shared with banks can't really be something that people hold private, so there's no Fourth Amendment claim to it. Those decisions were wrong at the get-go, and Smith versus Maryland, I think, made made clear that it was wrong because people did actually have, under the under the 1967 Katz test, they did actually have a reasonable expectation of privacy in phone dialing information, but the court decided they didn't because the members of the court wanted a conviction in this case. I think it's fair to say. So, so that that doctrine, wrong in the first instance has grown even more wrong over time, where today massive amounts of information, highly private and personal information, travel through third parties like ISPs, email service providers, and so on. Uh, we have a constitutional privacy interest in it, I argue, and I think that constitutional interest will be vindicated over time in the courts. Jim Harper is Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of Cato's work on the warrantless collection of your information at our website, cato.org.